The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. Now is our time where we are going to hear from the Word, and I'm going to invite up Jeff Bucknam. Uh, Jeff is the uh, lead pastor at Northview Community Church. As you may know, uh, Tri-City was planted uh, by the grace and resources and will of three churches. So Jeff is from one of the churches, Northview. Also, Cross Ridge and Westside were part of that. Jeff, you are from the church that's farthest away and yet closest to my heart. I just want you to know that. So... Um, Jeff is also part of the plant leadership team. If you're wondering how we can organize our leadership, he sits on that uh, sort of team also. Who pays you? Uh, I think some, you, someone, I think <laughs> you might. You does. Yes. Oh, there it is. <laughs> That's right. I don't That's know if fun. you actually signed the, do you sign the check? Okay. No, I don't. Um, no. But we're glad to have Jeff here. We're going to have guest speakers every now and again, but continuing on in our series through Philippians. Yeah, I'm going to pray for you. Thanks. Lord God, thank you, for, uh, thank you for this place. Thank you for this time where we get to come and gather and hear from you in your word. Uh, I thank you for Jeff, Lord, his support through all the process of, of starting Tri-City Church. And God, I pray now that you would, you would use him to continue to be a blessing to this church. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, prepare our minds and our hearts to hear from you. Uh, God, wherever it is in our lives that uh, you're looking to, uh, to shape us, I pray, God, that we would have keen ears to hear it this morning. And God, that you would uh, give Jeff the words to speak uh, to be a blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Um, m- most of you don't know me. Some of you, your faces are familiar to me. Um, just a little bit about me. Uh, I, I was, uh, I've been at Northview for well, 11 years now. The first two years was actually as a young adults pastor, and we had only planned to be there for, for like three years because uh, that's, you know, nobody wants to stay in Abbas for longer than that. So I am um, <clears throat> from the States and was in New Zealand for several years uh, prior to that. But, but we, I, they asked me to be the lead pastor. They all lost their minds. They asked me to be the lead pastor about nine years ago, and so I've been there, been there since. Like I said, I was in New Zealand prior to that, and so oftentimes a lot of my preaching shows echoes of that, a lot of stories and things that, that happened there. It was a really foundational time in my life where I was a teaching pastor at a church and also a professor at a, at a college, and um, it, was, it was excellent. It's just that if you, if you look at a map, you realize that New Zealand's a long way away from here. I'm from Seattle is where, I, kind of my hometown, and I, uh, we would fly to New Zealand, my wife and I, because we lived there, we'd, we'd fly you know, at least once a year. Um, that, that is a really difficult uh, flight. First time I ever did it, I thought, will it, will it ever end? I don't know if some of you have flown for 14 hours. Uh, and then we added a child to that, which made me want to kill everyone on the plane, including, <laughs> like, it's a special kind of terror, having a, a, a child that age, and uh, nobody understands when my wife was pregnant with my, my son, my oldest son, I have three children, my oldest son, um, you know, didn't have kids yet. Uh, my wife is not a good pregnant lady. She thrown, I don't mean like, I hate you, Jeff. I mean, uh, throwing up all over the place all the time, actually. And it got so that I would laugh, which didn't go well for me. You know, always taking care of her, holding the hair and this, it just really gross all the time. 
So when we went and stood in line to go back from Auckland, New Zealand, uh, we were flying back to, uh, to Los Angeles. I said to the, to, the, to, the, to the Air New Zealand ticketing agent in Auckland, I said, um, is it possible? Because she's going to be up and down a lot to the bathroom, and I, the closer we are, it's going to be good. Can you put us on the aisle? Because if you put somebody on the aisle next to us, that's going to be horrible for them, and just please, she's pregnant, our first child, and we're freaking out and stuff. And the ticketing agent, she's a Kiwi, of course, a New Zealander, and they don't always respond. New Zealanders, they're not always like, yeah, sure, like, that's Australian. Yeah, I'll do it for you. But in, in New Zealand, they just, mm, mm. So she did her, mm, mm, and she tapped the stuff in. She handed me two tickets and said, these are two lovely seats. And I said, thank you, right? Great. So 25 A and B. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. So anyway, we get, go to the plane. We're expecting whatever. So it, we get there, and uh, it's 747, big flight. So we get to the middle. They, always, they load it from the middle. So we go on, and, uh, you know, we're always in the, in the bum of the plane. So we're, we go on and take a right-hand turn. I'm walking back, walking back, walking back. And I, it's, it's just out of habit. I looked up at the, out of habit, we took a right and went to the back. But I looked up at the numbers, and they were like 56 and I was like, ah, and I don't know if you've ever made the mistake. Now you've got to swim upstream. You've got to turn back around. Excuse me, excuse me, I don't know how to count. Like, go back upstream. And uh, we kept going. You know, it's the further forward you get in the plane, the more, well, the nicer it gets, right? And we went through the section, the, the, the hallowed curtain. We passed through the curtain. And I was like, this has got to be wrong. But we were only at like 40. And we kept going. And then we went through another curtain into another section of the plane, and this one had beds in it. And so I'm, I'm going for, finally, we get to 25. And I look at it, and my wife, you know, she, she, I said, she said, what are we doing? What are you doing? I said, these, these are our seats. And she said, oh, this must be a mistake. I said, shh. <laughs> Just sit down. If it's a mistake, they'll tell us, right? Somebody else will come, and we'll get kicked out. But for right now, let's live this dream. <laughs> and we sat down in these chairs, and there's TV screens everywhere, and like it's uh, so comfortable. I mean, I don't have a I don't have a chair that's comfortable in my house. And I'm sitting in this seat, and then this, the the flight attendant comes up. And my wife said to me when she came up, "Here we go," right? <laughs> and she leaned over, and she had a manifesto, right? And so she or manifest, not a manifesto. That would have been like you know, sorry, rules for. Governing a country. But so um, <clears throat> here's, she's got the manifest and she said, and so you are Mr. and Mrs. Jeff Bucknam? Yeah. My wife starts getting her stuff. Yeah, that's us. She said, oh, lovely having you here today. Would you like uh, something to drink? Yeah, <laughs> sure. And something to eat. Here's the menus. And it's like four pages long. Just tell us what you want. And there's food on the table up there if you want it. And, and if you need to use the bathroom, we were told that you're pregnant. Oh, what are you expecting? And here's the right near the bathroom. And there's very few people be using it. The section's not full. So she leaves and we didn't say a word, neither of us. And my wife says to me, Jeff, we should probably tell her that we're not supposed to. Shh, I said... Don't say anything, okay? Don't mess this up. Greatest flight I've ever had in my life. Don't do this, by the way. If they ever upgrade you, don't you, because it ruined every flight from then on till now because you're not living in, in the luxury. Um, that line, though, 
don't say anything, honey, or you'll mess it up. Uh, is by God's grace Amen. what my experience has been in, in, in the church. Uh, I, I mean that I have had the opportunity to pastor churches that have been remarkably healthy. My father-in-law was not, he was a pastor for 35 years and he did not have that experience. And so I was weaned from him. I first got, I got into ministry uh, largely through him offering me a position as a youth pastor. And so he he would always tell me, Jeff, it's going to go all sideways all the time. It's going to be, he told me these horror stories about his church and how they split and all sorts of things. And so I have been in churches and regularly expected that tomorrow it's all falling apart. So I, I sit with staff at our church even now and say, everyone's like, oh, it's such a great season for our church. And I'll say, shh, don't do anything to mess this up. Just sit there, do your job and don't say anything. Because it's, e- it's easy to mess it up. Because I sit, I've sat on church planting boards. And I'll listen to a church planter whose church plant is folding. And they'll tell their story. They've only been doing it for like three years or two years. And they started out and everyone's excited. And lots of people showed up. And there's a new kind of church. All sorts of people are, are there. And um, one person in the congregation gets upset. And then this other person gets upset and Camps form, and next thing you know, there's fights, and now they're sitting in front of you saying, what do we do now with the assets? It's so easy for a good moment in the life of a church to become horror. It happens all around us. There's a disastrous danger in disunity, Apostle Paul, when he's writing the book of Philippians, he's got, lots of, he's got several reasons for writing. The, the book of Philippians is basically a thank you letter from a missionary to people who have sent him money. In it, though, he includes really praiseworthy words about, about um, the church and how great they are, but he's also got like some warnings in there. One of them is against false teaching, and the other one, though, is, listen, be careful that you guys don't Think too highly of yourselves and start thinking your opinion matters more than the other person because that will ruin everything. Even though it's really good right now, it will ruin everything. So in Philippians 2, you you get a passage that starts down this path. It's kind of heads up. That's what we're going to study here in the next few minutes, uh, Philippians 2, 1 to 5, and we'll go into verse 11 because uh, that's how I count. Um, it's about unity, and three things we're going to learn about unity. First, the source of our unity. Second, the threat to our unity. And third, the motivation for our unity. So, so the source of our unity, the threat to our unity, and the motivation for our unity. Here we go. First one, the source of our unity, verses 1 and 2, Philippians chapter 2. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, stop there. I, uh, in my time in New Zealand, I came back halfway through because I thought we were going to, we moved back to the United States for a few months thinking, oh, okay, we're going to, I'm going to get a job in a church in the U.S. And so I traveled to several different places doing interviews. There's one church in San Jose. 
was filled with new believers, lots and lots of people who had just come to faith in, in Christ. And the pastor said to me, uh, look, as part of your interview, what we want you to do is sit down for, for dinner, this wonderful Mexican restaurant with these three couples who've just come to faith in Christ in the last six months. Great. So we sit down, I'm eating the, the not, I never had like nachos like this before. So I'm just in there and they're talking to me about their church and their experience. Of course, you meet new Christians and you're asking them, how did you come to faith in Christ? And they're telling their stories and you're like, oh, that's amazing. I couldn't stop eating. And my wife's like, stop. They're so good. They kept talking and talking about together, talking about how amazing it is to be a Christian. This lady stopped me. One of the ladies stopped me. I'm telling her story. She said, you need to stop for a minute. Stop, because I had to eat straight. And I went, oh. And I put the chip down. And she said, listen, like I've been going to church for the last six months. I don't think the people realize how amazing it is to be a Christian. Like what you've got is just remarkable. You don't know what I've come from. And what I've come into in this church is just life-altering. I've never forgotten her words on that day. And when you read this passage at the very beginning, that's essentially what Paul's saying when he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from life, he's not asking you um, there may be or there may not be. He's saying, no, there is. This is what it means to be a Christian. You have encouragement and comfort and participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy. I mean, let me break a few of those down. The, The first Things he points out. You have encouragement in Christ and comfort from love. It means you're not dour. Listen, I know that we go through all sorts of difficult periods in our lives as Christians. I, I know that. But, but Christians are different than other people in the sense that we, we have a hope that people can't explain. We're not pessimists. Even though we might feel pessimistic at times and we're not plastically happy, but there is a deep-seated joy that we have in Christ, a comfort from his love because we know that the big questions about our lives, guys, have been taken care of, right? I mentioned my father-in-law, a pastor of 35 years. He uh, sends me emails from time to time. He warns me, keeps warning me, hey, my things might be going well now, but later... All the people you have in your church are going to have cancer. He uh, said stuff like that. He's a very realistic man. Um, I, love him to, I love him to pieces. He sent me an email, though, from a friend of his who just had cancer. He sends these to me from time to time. Here's what, he, here's what this email said. He said, hi, all. Time for an update. I've had a wonderful two weeks of freedom from all the drugs they pump into me. She had just found out that she had contracted cancer. She was starting to go into the the therapy for it. I thought that I was to start a new round of drugs yesterday, but there were some scheduling difficulties, and so Thursday will be my first day. They'll be using two different drugs on me. This Thursday, I get the first one, and then the following Thursday, I get the second, and then I get a week off, and then it starts over again. And after two times of this, they will take another lung scan and see how things are going. If the nodules on my lungs are the same or seem to be shrinking, then I'll continue with the treatment. But if they're bigger, we stop. And to quote the doctor, hopefully there'll be something else out there to try by then. Encouraging, eh? 
The side effects will be pretty much the same. Fatigue, low blood counts. One drug can cause numbing in the hands and feet, which may or may not go away after the drug is stopped. If the cancer's gone, it'll be worth it. I have learned more about my cancer in the meantime. My cancer comes in two types. The other type typically responds much better to treatment. Mine does not and is much harder to get rid of. I didn't know that. But one thing I do know is that God knows all this and nothing's too big for him. He's God. He has a plan for me. And right now, this is his plan for me to go through this. I, I, don't, I don't know what his will for me is in this long term, but no matter what, he loves me and he's in control. That's my comfort and he is my strength. So continue to pray for wisdom for my doctors and that God will show them what to do. And of course, we're praying that God's will is for me to be healed and him glorified. Love, Nancy. I have a friend at my church who, uh, whose father died a few years ago. His father's name was Casey. My friend's name is Nate. Casey was a, a well-known man around Abbotsford and a very uh, forthright Dutchman. He always knew what Casey thought about everything. Usually he was encouraging, but if you got on his wrong side, he'd let you know. So my friend Nate, his father's, was uh, going to be his funeral. My Nate asked me to come speak at the funeral, and he said, Jeff, here's what I need you to do, though, is when you come, I want you to absolutely bring every ounce of energy you have to this. And be as pointed as straight as you can. Because my family from, uh, from the Netherlands is coming over. And they're all secularists. They're all people who believe that the only thing that exists in this world is natural stuff. There's no immaterial thing in the universe. And so they are bound by this particular worldview. Influenced heavily by the enlightenment. Jeff, what I need you to do is I need you in this moment. It's like maybe one of the only moments where the window is cracking open for some of them where they're asking questions. I need you to absolutely take your hands, open that window, and run in. And I said, dude, I, are, are, you, are you sure? Because this, like, this is a funeral. People are going to expect, no. If my dad were here right now, he would tell you to tell them off. And I said, okay. Okay. He said, honor my father. So, Okay. You don't have to ask me twice. So I, I went to this funeral. I got up to talk. There's a point in the middle of the funeral where I said, okay, so if you hold the viewpoint of secularism and you, you believe that basically this is all there is and, and, and when you die, you basically you go in the ground and the worms eat you. And you don't, you don't bring that belief out in public because it's not very therapeutic, especially at funerals, okay? But you believe it. And you live your life by it. You have kind of an atheistic or at least an agnostic code. Here's my question for you. In a minute, the son of this man who's died and his wife, the man who dies wife, he, they will be standing right up here and you will, you will walk in front of them before you go get your sandwich and you will greet them. Here's my question. In this, the darkest moment of their life, what have you got? What, what do you have to share? What answers do you have? Are you going to trot out your belief that Casey's in the ground and rotting? 
You need to live consistently with the worldview that you have. And I'm telling you that if you're a Christian here, you have hope, you have comfort, you have even joy knowing that this is not the end. That this body that we lay in the ground will be resurrected in glory one day because Jesus has already defeated death. There is a significant difference between the hope a Christian has and what the world is selling. Anyway, I got an email from a guy later, this funeral, who said, you should not talk that way at funerals. He said, you need to bring comfort. And I, I wrote back in cat, I was bringing comfort. That's the problem. You don't, you don't see that you have so much comfort, Christian. You, do you, you see that? You, you have encouragement in Christ. You have, you have comfort from love. You notice he gives a couple more there. Participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. That language is probably referring to the Christian community. I know we like to read participation in the Spirit as being some, some oh, I feel something from the Holy Spirit. That's probably not what's meant, meant here. Paul's basically saying, look, the Spirit's work in the community of faith. You get to participate in it. You have affection and sympathy for others, and they for you, because they're your family. And that's the right word. If you look at the Scriptures, you'll find out that, in fact, that's what the church is called more often than not. It's the, fa- it's the family of God. It's a story, in fact, of Peter. There's a rich ruler who comes to Jesus and says, uh, tell me how to have eternal life. And Jesus says, oh, obey the commandments. Yeah, yeah, I've done all that. And Jesus is like, well, okay, we'll try the first one. You shall have no other God before me. Uh, how about your money? Do you love your money more than you love God? Is, is that a God before him? what I want you to do, Jesus says, go and give it all away and then come follow me. And the guy's like, oh, I can't, uh, no. So he goes away sad. How hard it is, says Jesus, for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Peter, of course, being Peter, bold, opinionated. Oh, but what about us, man? We've given up everything to follow you. And here's how that reads in Luke 18, 28. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, so you're going to get, Peter, listen, you're going to get eternal life, but in this time, all that you've given up will be replaced. Where? Where are you going to get brothers and sisters and mothers and uncles and aunties in the church is his point there is that listen the, the church is going to come around you Peter you guys and you are going to get more in this life than you could ever possibly imagine because of the shared community that you have you are part of you are part of a family you are so blessed Christian some of you have come probably as many of my friends have come from families where they actually to become a Christian actually meant for the, for you to be ostracized, to be pushed to the margins. Man, if you come from that kind of background, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the church itself has become your family. You sit right now next to brothers and sisters. And if you had to explain to people, oh, where's your family? You'd be telling them your biological answer to that question, but what you really want to tell them is actually, it's my sister in Christ and my brother in Christ. 
there's any encouragement in Christ and if any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So much to be thankful for, Christian. But that's not the end of the sentence, is it? (laughs) Then, so if this is the case, and since it is the case, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, if this is true of you, if you have all of these blessings given to you by the grace of Jesus, then shouldn't that grace beget grace? Shouldn't that be passed on? The obligation that comes from receiving all of these gifts is that you will end up being the kind of person who acts in light of it. Be who you are. So you get uh, all sorts of images in the scriptures about why should we love our brothers? Because Jesus loved us. Why should we forgive our brothers and sisters? Because Jesus forgave us. You do this with your kids. I I do it with my three children and we sometimes go to McDonald's. There I said it. It's out in the open now, sinner. <laughs> Kids are in a lot of sports, and uh, often McDonald's is on the way. So we go to McDonald's. McDonald's french fries are amazing. Uh, and all my kids love the McDonald's french fries. But, you know, you got to limit the french fries for the kids. So uh, I have a little girl. She's eight years old. And then I have a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old. And of course, the four- this 14-year-old and 17-year-old always get the meal with the, with the fries in it. And my daughter gets the Happy Meal, which has got like six fries in it. And, and my daughter, she thinks French fries are a gift of God to all of us. And so she finishes the, four, the six French fries, and she immediately says to her brothers, after we go through the drive-thru on our way, can I, Micah, it's my 14-year-old, can I have your French fries? No, he says. Ethan, can I have some? No, they're mine. Okay, when this happens... I nearly lose my mind because I want to pull over to the side of the road and I want to say to them, and often don't, I often do say this looking in the rear of your mirror, right? Not paying attention to the road, but screaming at my, who bought the fries? Because <laughs> I, recall, I recall buying them. I, I paid for them just a minute ago. So here's, the, here's how I see it. I gave you out of the sheer grace and awesomeness of my character, your French fries, and now I've given them to you and you're like, when someone else asks you for them, you say, no, they're mine. What if I had done that to you? You wouldn't have any French fries. And they're all crying by this time. And it's the same point though, isn't it? I mean, essentially, this is what God is saying. Well, Paul's, Paul is telling us that, look, 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 God has given you grace in measures you can't even imagine, and yet, what, are you, what do you do with it now? If you've received comfort, are you a comforter? If you, if you receive encouragement, are you encouraging? If you receive love, do you love? Grace begets grace. Actually, it's a, it's a sign that you're actually one of his. So look, the source of our unity is the grace of God. Here's the threat to it then, the second part of this. Verse 3. Do nothing then from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look, sorry, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's a, there's a historical background to the, to the, uh, the Philippian church that I mentioned earlier. Like I said, it's, it's a thank you letter from a missionary to people who gave him money. 
and he warns them against false teaching. But he's also concerned about this little, the possibility that might, there might be bitterness growing in the church. And he actually mentions the names of two ladies later on in the book who can't get along. So here in Philippians 4.2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Isn't that great? So these women who apparently have been significant helpers to the Apostle Paul in the ministry of planting churches are now in this church together and they're mad at each other. I don't know why. Maybe she wore the same shirt. I, uh, maybe the, over the car. Maybe it's not something petty. Maybe it's something significant, right? Over a belief or in this or that. We, we don't know, but they're not agreeing. And Paul's saying, look, look, I'm concerned for you. You're a great church. You're an amazing church. Your partnership in the gospel. Look at the money you gave me. Fighting off false teaching, you're a great church. But as I look on the horizon, I can see their possibility that this, this dissension, this seed of dissension could, could bloom into a flower of disunity that will destroy everything. That's how it works, right? I mean, it always, it always starts as a seed. Just a little thing. And you get mad. And then at 10 months, a year, two years later, you're looking over the devastated mess that the church has become and wondering, how did we get here? I told you my kids play sports. I, I am on, if your kids play sports or you've been around sports teams, you know this is the way it is. Uh, you start the season with all sorts of fervor. We're going to win it all. And if you lose a single game, what happens is everyone shakes hands. Oh, we'll get them next time. And then they go in their cars and they say, you know, it was, uh, my kids are playing volleyball right now. You know, it's the setter's fault. No, the setter's not to be faulted. of this guy who's passing. He's awful. He's terrible. Why is the coach playing him, stupid coach? I hate that coach. You come back. If you win, people forget it until the next time you lose. And then da, 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 da. emails are sent. And next thing you know, that camp hates that camp. And coach needs to be fired. And if you win it all at the end, everyone's like, yay, but I still hate you. <laughs> Destroys it. Most, most teams don't win. And part of the reason they don't win in the end is because this, the seed of dissension has bloomed into a flower of disunity. That has destroyed everything. Some of you work in places like this. Well, that person over there is part of that camp, and you're part of this camp, and you guys don't. It, this is how it works. Something inside of us that just has to talk about each other behind each other's back and try to argue that we're not to be faulted. It's a blog post that a friend sent to me a few years ago called Anatomy of a Church Conflict that listed down from this pastor who had been serving in churches for years and years. He listed down, this is how it happens in churches. He said, first, an offense occurs. Doesn't matter what it is. Somebody's offended by somebody else. An offense occurs. Second, a biased view of the offense is shared with friends, because that's the first thing you do. Do you know that uh, Joe is a jerk? Because here's why. Your friends, of course, they, they take up the offense. They like lunch with you at Moxie's. 
They want to still do that. And they're not going to sit in front of you and say, yeah, you think you're being a bit of a, you know. So they, they take up the offense and then, and then sides begin to form. It's your side. Of course, and the person who offended you is, you know, digging their heels in and they've got a side now and they've got a story to tell about that situation. Exaggerated statements between the sides are made in the heat of the conflict. Those involved hear things that were never said. Well, I heard that uh, Joe uh, says that you're an instrument of the devil. Well, I heard. And then some people say things they wish they'd never said because I don't like being called an instrument of the devil. How dare you, Joe? And past offenses unrelated to the original offense service, you know what I mean? Like, you know, 15 years ago, this guy was kind of a jerk too. Oh, yeah, it's a pattern, this guy. He's always been this way. And then those who try to, in a church, those who try to solve the problem, which is usually the church leaders, they're blamed for not following proper procedure, and then they become the new focus of anger. If I went to a better church, the leaders would have been better, and they would have sided with me. Hate churches. Never gone again. And then you meet people on the street. I used to go to church, and I don't like it anymore because uh, of these reasons that this church wronged me. Eventually, everything blows up. People choose not to speak to each other ever again. <coughs> Meanwhile, outside the doors of the church, people are going to hell. My father-in-law used to say to me when I first started ministry, uh, the great sin of the church is pettiness. My point here is that if you want to ruin the ministry of this church or any church, I'll just tell you it's easy. It's very easy. Just enthrone your opinion, get others to join your team, and watch as the mission of the church is ignored because we're so busy dealing with all the rubbish in here. It's easy. So that's the threat. Source of our unity, the threat to our unity. Finally, the motivation for our unity. Verse 5. So Matt gave me only till verse 5. So I'm supposed to stop at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But of course, you and I at this point are going, what mind? Okay, so let me go on then. Paul's gonna quote, he's gonna quote a hymn, an ancient hymn, and in the hymn, he's focusing on two things. He wants to say, listen, I, I, what I want you to know is the mind of Jesus is seen in his one incarnation, meaning Christmas, and in his death. On a cross, in his atonement, Good Friday. So, so first, if you want to know what the mind of Jesus is that I'm talking about, says Paul, I want you to look at the incarnation, Christmas Day, God becoming man. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So in other words, this God... The second member of the Trinity, the agent of God's creation, the one who flung stars into space, this one who actively holds the molecules of your body together, put on flesh, and was born to a virgin and laid in a feed trough. Like, how, how do you, what? How do you explain, how do you explain that? C.S. Lewis tried. Here's his go. He said, lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for a moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. 
Some of us love dogs very much. If it would help all the dogs in the world to become like men, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, art, literature, music, and choose instead of the intimate communion with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak? Okay. I, yeah, there's, there is a, a distance between the experience of a dog and the experience of human beings, right? But, but that barely comes close to the difference between the human being and God. The all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God gave up, emptied himself, right? To, to become a, a baby. What word do you use to describe that? Well, humility. So the mind of Christ is one of humility. You can see it in his incarnation, and you can also see it in his death on a cross. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Underline that. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know, most people aren't quite aware of the process of crucifixion. We, we wear crosses on our necks, okay? And, and we kind of generally know that it was a, a method of torture for the Romans. Here's how it worked. If, if you are guilty of a crime that's deserving of crucifixion, then I whip you, hopefully to the point just on the edge of death. And after that, I make you carry a crossbeam through a public street. The reason you go through the public street is so that people can jeer and, and spit on you. When you get through this public street, you go onto a public road where we put that crossbeam on a, a large pole. We drop it in the ground. There's usually, in fact, a little seat on it. And the reason they put a seat on it is because they don't want this to end quickly. They want your death to be long and tortured. So there you are hanging, and we put you on the main road so people can walk by. And there's a sign above you stating your crime. And people will walk by and hurl insults at you, you enemy of Rome. You mess with the Romans, eh? That's what you get. You filth, you defecate on yourself. You're naked in front of everyone. Dying there. The whole point is humiliation. So I just, okay, just listen to me for a second. If you are the one who made the mouths of men and you're hanging there on the cross, what would you want to do as they walked by and hurled insults at you. If, as I said, you're actively holding together the molecules of their body and people are walking by, these very people whose existence depends on your will, you remain silent, do you? At your command, all the glory of heaven's armies could come down and decimate Rome like that. You hang there. The incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus reek of humility. So what does it mean to have the same mind as Christ? It means to embrace his humility. It, listen, it's hard to be selfish 
and conceited in the shadow of the cross. It is, it is hard to stand there in that shadow, look up at what Jesus is doing for you and the humility that it required and then look at everybody else and say, they're my frights. My opinion. You're gonna live by it. When he gave up so much, ought that not lead you to give up so much? Listen, people always ask at the end of stuff like this, so give me something real practical. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, as we finish here, Jonathan Edwards gave a, um, a very practical list of, of, of suggestions for his church based, in fact, on this text. He said, okay, so here's, here's what we're gonna agree to. And he gave, it's called the, North, the Northampton Unity Agreement of March 16th in 1742. So it's old, you gotta believe it, because it's old. Here's what he said. Here's a, here's a few of them. He said, in all our conversation, concerns, and dealings with our neighbors, we will be honest, just, and upright. We're going to commit to this. If we wrong others in any way, we will not rest until we have made restitution. Third, we promise that we will not permit ourselves to indulge in any kind of backbiting. Fourth, we will be careful not to do anything to others out of a spirit of revenge. When there's a difference of opinion concerning another's rights, we will not allow private interests to influence us. And we will not tolerate the exercise of enmity or ill will or revenge in our hearts. If we find that we have a secret grudge against another, we will not gratify it, but will instead root it out. And we resolve to examine ourselves on a regular basis, knowing that the heart is very deceitful. And ultimately, we will run with perseverance the race that is set out before us, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Look, uh, times are good in an early church plant. Yes? Okay, so shh, just don't say anything, okay? We could ruin it all. Here's a disastrous danger in disunity. We pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. I pray that you would uh, work that grace and make us aware of it more and more so that we would pass it on and that your grace would beget more grace as we charitably consider one another. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.